Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Oh, you got a little preview right there. You got just a little taste of who we're going to be bringing on in just a second. But first, I do want to say thanks to all of you for joining us live, coming to you streaming from uh, Liberty Hill, Texas. It's 830 in the morning here. It's 630 in the morning where my guest is sitting. So he got up nice and early. And having been a Arizona resident for most of the last 12 months, I know exactly what that's like when someone says, hey, come join me for my show. It's going to be at 4.30 your time. How do you feel about waking up and crawling out in the darkness? So I've done that, and I'm very appreciative of uh, Jake for joining us. But before we get into that, let me say a couple of quick thank yous to our sponsors. I want to start off with our friends over at Patriot Coolers. So there is the Patriot Coolers logo. This is the hard tumbler, or this is the uh, the hard coolers, rather. These are their rotomolded pieces. Buy one of those things at patriotcoolers.com. Upgrade your life. Be able to uh, buy a good product from a good company based in Houston, Texas, using promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. Gets you 10% off. Promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. 10% off on any of your stuff. 50, uh, 50 bucks or more, you're going to get free shipping. So that's number one. Uh, let's say thanks to Catholic Vote. These are my friends over at Catholic Vote in the fight for faith, family, and freedom. And as you guys probably know, you can pull up the loop by just putting in your email address there. Today's loop has all kinds of good stuff in there. It is the GOP debate highlights. It's got uh, Tucker and Trump. The interview that just happened instead of the debate, if you happen to watch that, which I did. Uh, the high court upholding a South Carolina heartbeat law. So good things for babies in America, uh, particularly in South Carolina. A Catholic farmer speaking about discrimination. handful of other good things. You guys are going to want to check it out. Go ahead and get yourself signed up to receive the loop. And lastly, because I'm just going to do them all at one time here, let's say this is the Suspendables merch. If you guys are looking for your merch, from my friend Garrett O'Boyle, who is live in the chat, G-O-B, actual, go to the-suspendables.com. And some of the portions of the proceeds there are also going to benefit the Suspendables Support Fund, which we are getting off the ground probably in the next 10 days. It's taken a little bit of time to incorporate in Delaware, but we are getting this thing done. All right, without too much further ado, I don't want to keep him waiting any longer. I want to bring on America Shaman. This is Jake Chansley. Buddy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for waking up really early. I know what that's like. Yeah, not a problem. I'm glad to be here, and it's an honor to be in the presence of uh, a strong individual like yourself who blew the whistle when it needed to be blown. It did need to be blown. Um, I want to I want to kind of walk back in time a little bit. Uh, I think people are familiar with seeing you in uh, some of the costume paint. They've seen you in, the, in kind of the thumbnail picture that we have. But I want to get a better picture. Any audience that can understand, you know, the the human lens that uh, that brought you to a point, I'm sure that you didn't expect to be making national news and being the face of January 6th for so many people. Uh, I imagine that was probably the last thing on your mind when you went to D.C. So I want to walk to that point first and give people a picture of who you are as a human being how you grew up and all that kind of thing. So can you tell me where you were born and maybe the family that you grew up in a little bit about it? Sure. Born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, you know, I have a couple of younger siblings. I went to, you know, government school. I went into the Navy after I turned 18, uh, two years in the Navy. And I got a general discharge under honorable conditions because I refused to take the anthrax vaccine. So I came home and, uh, you know, got various jobs working at a hardware store, working at a sub shop, uh, trying to sell Kirby vacuums. Uh, uh, then, um, somewhere along the lines, I realized that, uh, I wanted to work with kids. 
So I started working in group homes with troubled teen boys, and I did that for six and a half years. And all the while I was writing, I was researching, I was uh, walking my shamanic path, you know, walking the path of the shamanic practitioner. And uh, shortly thereafter, you know, 2020 hit, COVID-1984 hit, and the riots of uh, 2020 along with it. So I kind of started to look at the political landscape and realized that as a spiritual activist, which I consider myself a spiritual activist, not a political one, uh, as a spiritual activist, it was my shamanic duty to get out there and uh, spread the truth. So you just mentioned that you had a, a uh, discharge under honorable circumstances, a general discharge for the anthrax vaccine. That would have been what, 2002, 2003-ish? Is that when that was? Uh, well, I, I joined in 2005 Five, and okay. left in 2007. Now, my understanding was is there was some court cases, and I don't know when they got settled, but essentially they ruled that your right to refuse the anthrax vaccine was appropriate. There were a number of soldiers and sailors that actually got back pay and reinstated because of that. There was a legit problem. I know a lot of people had issues with that vax. Um, what, what made you refuse at that point in time? Well, uh, like many people with the COVID-1984 vaccine, I did my research. I did my research. <laughs> um, all you have to do is do a little bit of digging and you find that one in 500 males become sterile with the anthrax vaccine. There's all sorts of people that have been crippled due to blood clots in their legs. There's all sorts of negative side effects, um, neurological disorders, stuff like that. Some people even died. So I thought, well, that's no good. I'm, I don't want to take that. Why would I want to take that? And the other thing is, is that the anthrax vaccine only protects, protects against a skin-borne illness. So if we were to be attacked through a respiratory or aerosol form of anthrax, the vaccine wouldn't have helped us at all. So I thought, well, what's the point in taking something that isn't going to actually do the job if we're going to be attacked with anthrax and it has all these negative side effects no i'm not doing that it makes perfect sense to me what what sort of um negative consequences did you foresee when you said no being in the military oh well you know restriction um dock and pay um and uh discharge from the navy but that was worth it as far as i was concerned because i'd like to have children and um, I don't want to screw my body up for the rest of my life because of a choice I made to join the military at a young age. So and the thing is that the military, God love them, the people at the Pentagon, you know, people at the Pentagon don't care about the people in the lower ranks. As far as they're concerned, they're a number. And I'm more than just a number. It's interesting you mentioned that. I, I've seen a lot of guys go to the Pentagon and come back and they're very different as commanders. You know, they start off one way and then you see them you know, rejoin the force at a, at a higher rank that you should go there when they're an E5 or an E6. And they come back and they're not the same guy. I don't know what the political indoctrination is, but obviously you saw something similar as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, the thing is the military is full of honorable men and women, full of great people. But the other part that's kind of sad about the military, and I think this is all government employees for the most part, is that as you get promoted, you get promoted because you do what you're told without question. And that's dangerous. It is. It's funny that you say it that way, because my my uh, original producer, my pr producer emeritus, if you will, who's a former FBI agent, said that a GS-15, that's the top of the, the regular pay scale before you move into the executive ranks, 
Uh, a GS-15 in the FBI is someone who's never said no to a bad idea. It sounds like you saw something very, very similar from the military end of things. Oh, yeah. You know, and then people got promoted for getting a good grade on a test. Come on. Now, that's not quite how it is now, but that's how it was when I was in. And now you have to have a degree in order to move up, uh, which I mean, OK, that's, I guess, OK. But like there are so many chiefs out there. Salt, we called them salty chiefs mm -hmm. that have been in the Navy for 20 years. And then you get some young officer, some ensign or something fresh out of uh, officer school. And they come in thinking that they know. And it's like, well, actually, this this chief has been out on more deployments than you can count. And he knows exactly what he's doing. I would take his advice. But in officer candidate school, they basically help people to become, shall we say, good little machines. <laughs> yeah, wheels or cogs in the machine, right? They just they do their part and everybody is part of it. And and part of that is the military. I, I think we can kind of empathize with that. But it, Absolutely. But that's not what leadership is, I think. Uh, no. I think that's the issue. Yes. All right. Very I want to dig, so. dig a little further in. So we, we, you're out of the Navy. You've said no. You've already shown kind of a strong principle. That's not a thing. I didn't know that about you, by the way. I didn't know you refused the anthrax vaccine at that time. You decided you wanted to work with kids. What was that instinct? What was that urge? And then maybe get a little specific about the, uh, the time working in group homes. Well... I have a strong proclivity for helping children, especially troubled children. Um, I, God love my dad. He wasn't the best role model growing up. So I looked up to people like uh, Christ. I looked up to people like Buddha. And um, after a while, I came to understand that we don't really have a lot of positive male role models out there. A lot of these kids at the group home were idolizing rappers and drug dealers and stuff like that or they, they came from either broken homes or homes that were shall we say headed by less than reputable men so i thought to myself well it's a part of the shamanic tradition to ask ourselves at any crossroads how will this decision affect seven generations from now and we don't really do that these days so as soon as I started to do that, I realized that working with kids was essential for the survival of humanity and the future of our nation. So that's when I started to work with kids in group homes. And um, it was very, very tough work, but it was also very rewarding, something I'm sure that you can understand being the ex-FBI. Yeah, there's there's moments there that were rewarding for sure. Obviously, some that were not. You've mentioned now Christ, Buddha, and a shamanic tradition. These are all sort of spiritual and faith-based things. Can you talk about the formation of your faith, which I've, I've heard in other interviews is very integral to your existence? I think actually Bill Shipley said that in a space that I was listening to. Can you talk about how you formed it, wh where you grew up with it, where it started, and how it evolved, and maybe what it sits at right now, the way that you look at the world, what the spiritual lens is that you're looking at? Sure. Well, I've always been interested ever since I was a child in shamanism. Uh, I've always wondered, like, what are those dudes in the feather headdresses and face paint dancing around a fire, banging on a drum, singing a song? What do they what do they know? I know that they know something that we lost here in the West. I know they know something we lost in modern materialism, but I didn't quite know what. 
And after a while, I started to look deeply, deeply into it and listening to lectures, reading books. Um, I even went to sweat lodges and stuff like that. And after a while, it became quite clear that they did know something that we lost. And so I wanted to know what that was. And I began to initiate myself, which is very rare, being a self-initiated shamanic practitioner. Usually you have like a, a uh, mentor of some sort. Uh, I began to initiate myself into these shamanic traditions. And I would just do the research and say, oh, this is what they did. Okay, well, I'm going to do that. Oh, this is what they did. All right, I'm doing that. And eventually over time, it helped me to grasp fathom and grasp the totality of existence, fathom and grasp our role as human beings in our interconnected nature, not just to, to mother nature, but also to father God. And, uh, that was a very profound experience for me because it helped me to really integrate my spiritual beliefs with modern science and an understanding uh, because I've always been interested in physics and stuff like that as well, quantum physics, celestial mechanics, et cetera. It helped me to understand how it is that the ancient shamans, man, they already understood everything that we're just starting to understand now in the West and in modern science. And so once I kind of started to grasp how it is that these two things were you know, blending in basically two different civilizations speaking the same language, I really started to look at the world differently. And I think that the reason why our socioeconomic and geopolitical systems are so corrupt and so distorted is because our spiritual view of reality has be become so distorted and our spiritual institutions have become so corrupt. We've really lost some anchoring, I think, is, uh, I think that's correct. So now the way that you've been presented is kind of cartoonish. And what I'm trying to do is get to the, the you know, I think that would be a fair characterization. That's the only way that I ever saw it. And I don't think that's fair for any human being. So what I want to do is I heard you say things like mentorship. And I heard you talk about uh, reading and self-educating along this path. Will you talk about one, the mentor, uh, whoever this person was, or if there were several kind of characteristics that you sought out. And then the second, what authors were you reading? What specific books um, in the shamanistic tradition so that people can get kind of a grasp of where that uh, evolved out of, because we all come from somewhere. I'd like to know what that is. Right. Well, um, I'm largely a, a self-initiated shamanic practitioner. I, you know, fortunately, as weird as it is, I didn't have a mentor along the shamanic path. Uh, if I had to pick somebody that I looked up to, I, I've already given the names of Christ and Buddha, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much where it lands. Um, when it comes to like literature, I would say uh, Terrence McKenna really understands the shamanic traditions very well, and he's a very eloquent speaker and author. I listen to a lot of his uh, lectures as well. Um, also, uh, there is, um, let's see, Carlos Castaneda is a controversial figure. There's a lot of people that think that the stuff that he wrote in his books was just anthropological study that he didn't actually experience these things. Um, and I kind of came to the conclusion that it really didn't matter whether he experienced it or not. If the data is there and if these things are a part of the shamanic tradition, then we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So uh, that's another example. Um, and, you know, when you 
realize that the kingdom of heaven is within and that all wisdom and truth and knowledge is in your heart and that you are a human being made in the image of God, then you realize that you really don't need anything other than your heart, a love for God, and your own experiences of the divine in order to reach enlightenment. I read a lot of Carlos Castaneda. It was uh, something my father was really into. So I grew up around that. And uh, the art of dreaming was was one that I know that I've read at least a couple times over and over again and tried to practice some of those things, just active dreaming and some of those techniques. Um, really, really an interesting sort of tradition. And I'm not sure that it's at odds necessarily with people's Christianity. It, it may be, but I don't. I haven't. I haven't experienced anything that said that was antithetical to it. I grew up in Catholic school, so kind of interesting. I, it's always kind of fun to think about who the thought leaders are in that, the books that shaped you. I'm I'm appreciative of kind of learning some of that. And so as you evaluated those, and as you looked at the world, and you you said that we were basically we didn't have that anchor, we didn't have that fundamental rooting um, in our political discussions about the way that our spiritual world was. How did that lead you? to the political situation that puts you in front of the Capitol on January 6th. There's, there's got to be some active call, and I'm curious what, that, what, what you felt called to do and, and what you were trying to accomplish when you went to Washington, D.C. in 2021. Well, I've had shamanic traditions, uh, shamanic uh, visions of the future, and shamanic traditions having visions of the future or premonitions is not strange, especially for the highly developed shamanic practitioner. Uh, everybody's gifts are different. So I've had visions of the future. I saw where it was that we were going if we didn't do something now. And uh, when it comes to like the political stuff, I came to believe and understand that we were blind because we were following, uh, we were lost because we were following blind leaders. And I mean, I once heard a saying that says anybody that's smart doesn't get into politics. That's why we're, you know, a country run by idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think that at this point, we are a society that has become socially and morally bankrupt because of the institutions that we are allowing to govern our lives. And identity politics, propaganda, the mockingbird media, the uh, pop culture, all of these things have distorted our spiritual view of reality. They've, and it's from that spiritual distortion that we are making the decisions that we're making. It, and that spiritual distortion, if it can be condensed into a few words, is it's based on the illusion of separation. We are an interconnected whole, connected to God, connected to nature, connected to each other. But we're making decisions based on this illusion of separation, based on this illusion that what we do, what we think, what we say, how we feel, what we, how we behave, that none of these things really make a difference when they actually make a massive difference. Now, some people will say, well, it's just a drop in the bucket, you know, a drop in the ocean. Well, Gandhi once said, what you do is of little importance, but it's very important that you do it. So I think that we've kind of been sold a line by these leaders. And when it comes to January 6th, I, I was also in Washington, D.C. on December 12th for the second MAGA Million March in 2020. And everything was fine. 
everything was peaceful. Everything was wonderful. It was great. Um, I enjoyed it quite a lot. I uh, also, I, I thought that that was what we were going to get more of <laughs> on January 6th. But then there's also the fact that Washington, D.C. is built on electromagnetic ley lines. I don't know if you're familiar with like the idea of the ley lines and stuff like that. But yeah, feel okay. free to break it down for people who don't. Okay. So electromagnetic ley lines are the electromagnetic lines that surround the Earth. So the Earth has an electromagnetic field, and that electromagnetic field not just surrounds the Earth, it goes all the way down to the core of our planet. And so because of that fact, there are certain portions of the planet, there are certain locations where these electromagnetic lines cross the surface. And then there's also certain portions where these electromagnetic lines actually cross each other, okay? Now, that is where ancient cultures have built pyramids. That's where they've built obelisks. That's where they built their ancient temples. That's where they've built their um, ancient buildings, medicine wheels in the Native American tradition. So Washington, D.C. is built on ley lines. The Washington Monument, the Capitol Building, the uh, Lincoln Memorial, the Supreme Court, the White House, the Jefferson Memorial, all of them are built on electromagnetic ley lines. And this is designed to channel the energy, the electromagnetic energy in the ecosystem to and through these buildings of power or through these monuments. That's why like the Lincoln Memorial is basically like a massive uh, harmonic chamber. So uh, sound and singing, drumming, dancing, all of these things are a part of the shamanic tradition because when you go to the ley lines and you sing your shamanic song, you bang on your drum and you, know, uh, you dance, these things end up affecting the quantum realm. They end up changing the what's called uh, the quantum entangled universe. They change the quantum entangled particles and the, their spin. So going to D.C., it's like, well, if there's going to be a million people or more assembled on the electromagnetic ley lines, that's, that's a lot of energy to be plugged into the ley lines. And uh, God saw fit that I be in Washington, D.C. on December 12th and on January 6th. Uh, the incredible circumstances and coincidences that happened to get me there were astronomically impossible. So it seemed as though God wanted me there. And I, you know, even after everything that I've been through, I'm glad that I was there. I was there to ensure peace. I was there to ensure high vibes. I was there to ensure that um, everything went as smooth as humanly possible. So I think a lot of people that are listening to you speak right now are disabusing themselves of the notion that you're a human meme or that you were a cartoon, which I said, you know, I think that is the presentation that a lot of people had. It was like, splash up this visual. This is not what we normally see. And then make whatever snap assumption you have. That's that's essentially what the, the media did to you for quite a while. And so I, I'm enjoying sort of the, the piece of this. What I want is for those who are watching in the live chat, and we have hundreds of people that are watching currently right now, if they'll go down into the comments and leave comments of questions that they would like to also have answered, I think Ryan will bring those up. So folks, we'll just get you to do that. If you want to hit the like button as you're there, go ahead and do that as well. Um, you mentioned sort of a, a problem with apathy. This was your Gandhi quote. I think it sounds like people's fundamental disconnect from what's going on. It's like, what I do doesn't matter, so I'm not going to do it at all. And that was your concern. In the military, we talk about things in a, a task and a purpose, right? There's a, a thing that you're doing, the task, and then the purpose, which is the reason. What was the task and the purpose behind 
the first trip and the second trip to D.C. if you were going to get it down to a very narrow action plan? Like, what were you expecting to accomplish and how? Well, in the shamanic tradition, when there's large amounts of people at a sacred site, which D.C. can be considered a sacred site, uh, the shaman, it is their role to basically allow that process to unfold in a positive way. Even just the shaman's presence in the area can end up changing the timeline. It can change the vibration of that location because the shaman's perspective is one that is largely based in the, uh, the objective view of reality. And just having that plugged into the collective consciousness of that location can make a difference. When it comes to like my reasons and motivations, um, so I wrote a book in 2017 called One Mind at a Time, A Deep State of Illusion by Jacob Angeli. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, shameless book plug. I'm really not trying to plug the book. I'm just letting you know why it is that I did what I did uh, as far as going into D.C., so I have a view of the deep state that most people don't. I have an understanding of the deep state that most people can barely even wrap their mind around and how it relates to all of this different stuff and the history of how we got here, how we got to this place that we're at where the FBI is targeting Catholic churches. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So um, because of that perspective, I realized, okay, well, nobody's doing what I think needs to be done. Nobody's saying what I think needs to be said. And if there's going to be a million people assembled in D.C., then I should be there and ensure that everything is high vibe and everything is peaceful. And just by being there, I was also plugging my consciousness, plugging my high-frequency uh, electromagnetic field into the grid. I also, you know, I did a... Like a, I guess you could say a ceremonial walk from behind the Capitol building all the way to the Lincoln Memorial. I think it was on December 12th where uh, I was banging my drum and screaming freedom as loud as I could. And it was echoing all throughout the area as I was marching from the Capitol all the way to the Lincoln Memorial. And that's a part of shamanism, like I said, you know, changing the uh, the spin of quantum particles, changing the very fabric uh, of reality in that sense. And what's really interesting is that, well, part of shamanism is 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 calling rain or creating storms. And so it was my intention to cleanse the ecosystem of D.C., to cleanse all of the negative energy, to cleanse all of the evil that has been harboring there for quite some time. And after December 12th, I left you know, a day or two later and I went back to Phoenix and lo and behold, the one of the largest storms to have ever struck DC, one of the largest snowstorms to have ever struck DC and the East Coast, I think it even like hit New York and New Jersey and a bunch of other places, it, it hit. And I was just like blown away, like, whoa, holy crap, you know. Um, and I, some people, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that it was, you know, oh, I did that, you know. But in shamanic traditions, you, when you cleanse an ecosystem, the elements respond to that cleansing. The water, the snow, whatever, come into the ecosystem, and they basically wash away all that energy, and they allow it to start fresh. 
Fair enough. You had a uh, you, you just mentioned your book, and we'll bring it up at the end here because I'm happy to plug people's books. I think people should read and know you know who they're listening to. You uh, you mentioned a an understanding of the deep state. Where did that understanding come from? If not working in government, what allowed you to have an insight into how the deep state works? Well, if you do enough research, and and when I mean research, what I'm saying is that, so I'm sure you're familiar with compartmentalization, Mm -hmm. right? Being that you're in the, you know, FBI. So compartmentalization, for those that don't know what it is, is, is it's almost like one person is given a small little puzzle piece of a much larger picture. And they're told to work on what that little puzzle piece is and the picture within. Now, there are many people above that person with that little puzzle piece that are in charge of putting larger and larger portions of those puzzle pieces together. And then there's usually somebody up on the tippy top that has a whole view of the big puzzle, right? The whole picture. Yep. So compartmentalization is how our government functions, especially when you get into things like security clearances, non-disclosure agreements, top secret clearances, et cetera. So within the government, there are all these compartmentalized factions of the government. Some are doing research and development on technology, some on biology, some on medicine, some on um, transportation, some on infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Some on stopping terrorism, And so if you look at the testimony of people that are whistleblowers at these really high levels within certain compartmentalized portions of the deep state, then you begin to like bring all this stuff together that they've said, especially the ones that don't live very long after they blow the whistle. Um, Then what you end up finding is a very clear view of this big picture because now you have all these compartmentalized portions of the deep state that have become visible. And if you line up their little respective puzzle pieces or their conglomeration of puzzle pieces that they themselves have assembled, then you can really begin to get a big picture of what the deep state is, how it operates, where we're headed, et cetera. So that's kind of what the book One Mind at a Time, A Deep State of Illusion is about, is the testimony of a lot of whistleblowers, um, as well as the news reports that have been suppressed by the Mockingbird media, and how it is that all of these things line up to give us a very clear view. So the truth is out there, but the, and this is the whole thing behind psychological warfare, is that the information, the truth, is out there. So in order to obscure the truth, in order to obscure true information, disinformation is then plugged into the system. And then the Mockingbird media will take whatever little true information they're willing to give the people and then combine it with disinformation. And then they can have a misinformation narrative that they will control and therefore control the minds of the populations, you see. So the real trick of the shaman is to have an objective view of reality, to not look at it through a cultural paradigm, to not look at it through a political paradigm, to not look at it through an economic paradigm, but to look at it through all of them and not, and none of them, right? And to see it objectively as it is. And that's essentially what I have tried to do. And I think quite successfully, if I might add. I, uh, I remember a piece in, in Castaneda's, I think it was an Art of Dreaming, but it could, have been, it could have been one of his other books I read, where he talks about trying to see things in the way, not the way that we normally see them with our eyes, but looking into the shadow and then perceiving 
the reality of the of the object that's casting the shadow, something to that effect. And so yes. looking, looking not where they're telling you to look, not at the thing that is the most obvious. Can you tell people, you've used the term mockingbird media a number of times. I've seen you cut off on some national media broadcast uh, when you were discussing it. Can you lay that out for people, what that means? Absolutely. Operation Mockingbird is when the CIA infiltrated all the major media outlets here in the United States. They did so during like the 60s and the 70s to curb and cull the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. So by controlling the narrative in the media, the CIA was then able to control the minds of the public because people's perception is reality for them. Even if it's not objective reality, it's still the way that people perceive it. So if Operation Mockingbird uh, was capable of hijacking the narrative in the country and, and controlling what people talked about, then they could control people's minds. And what it is that the Mockingbird media's narrative uh, was would then ultimately become people's reality, regardless of whether or not it was rooted in actual reality. I mean, the term conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory was created by the CIA and the media, Mockingbird media, after JFK was assassinated. And lots of people were like, this Lee Harvey Oswald guy, th this doesn't make sense. I'm watching the video. It looks like he was shot by more than one bullet from more than one angle. I don't buy this. So they needed something to change people's minds, to curb their disbelief in government and the media. And so then they created this cognitive label, and this is where we get into things like neuro-linguistic programming, and then they saturated all the media outlets with it. This is called critical factor bypass. And in the process, some, a, a phenomenon called mass formation hypnosis began to occur where 25 to 30% of the people in the country believed the narrative that they were being given. And it is the Mockingbird media that is one of the many smoke screens for the deep state and their nefarious activity. What do you think about the people that are engaged in promoting these media narratives? Do you have any uh, instinct about what kind of human beings they are and, and where they fit into that machine? Well, I'm sure a lot of them mean well. I'm sure a lot of them buy the propaganda themselves. A lot of the people that are on the Mockingbird media outlets are just talking heads. They're actors. They're reading a script for a camera, right? Now, the real culprits, I guess you could say, would be the, the high-level people, the people at the tippy-top of these media corporate outlets. And... Um, I mean, if you look into the Council on Foreign Relations and stuff like that and how the media has been involved in that, uh, how it is that um, media corporations get a seat at the Council on Foreign Relations table. And uh, if you look at the lack of coverage of things like the Bilderberg Group and the Mockingbird Media and stuff like that, you'll really start to grasp who's in control. And it certainly is not the voter. And... I mean, that's it's terrible, but uh, largely the American people are so uneducated as to what's actually going on. They're so disinformed that they they don't even know what they're looking at when they're looking at it. They don't even recognize psychological warfare techniques when they're being used on them. If the voter's not in control, then what would be the purpose of gatherings on December 12th, January 6th and so on? What would be the upside of going to something like that? Well, it's a shift in collective consciousness. You see, 
as people start to realize that our votes really don't matter as much as we thought they did, as people start to realize that it is a selection process, not an election process, then that that changes our thoughts. It changes this cultural paradigm. It changes our view of reality. And we start to wake up. We begin to awaken as to the current situation and how, you know, it's not that the world is getting worse. It's been this bad. It's just that the truth of national and global corruption is becoming so much more obvious. And that is essential for change to be made. So, you know, going to D.C., whether it be on December 12th or on January 6th, what it was was it was being there at a time where the mass consciousness was shifting, where people were really starting to ask more questions than they were willing to accept answers blindly. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot a little bit to those days specifically. Um on both days, were you in the religious attire that you have been shown all over the Capitol and, and like I said, has been kind of memed in some, some ways? Was that the same attire on both days? Yeah, yeah, on December 12th and on January 6th. I've been dressing that way for over 10 years. Sure. So here's here's my question. How was that received? Um, I would say that the majority of people who support Trump and the majority of conservatives in general are pretty down-the-middle Christian. That's probably the vast majority, 80% plus. Um how was your your mindset, your attitude, and your message received by people around you? They loved it. The people wanted to take pictures, man. <laughs> what kind of questions did you field from them when they were? Because you know there are obviously other people that were doing straight political costume, I would call it, uh, and without any religious implications. It's you know the full MAGA gear, like they're going to a football game. Um, yours obviously has a little bit more behind it. So, what kind of questions did you face? What kind of answers were were given, and how was that received? Um, well, you know, lots of people, the main question was, yo, can I get a picture? <laughs> sure. Um, so, uh, a lot of people, uh, I used to carry a sign with me that said Q sent me and, um, hold the line Patriots, God wins. And, um, when people would ask who's Q, I would tell them Q is the highest levels of the military and the intelligence community disseminating above top secret information to patriots in our republic so that we can take back our nation from communists and globalists who have infiltrated our government at some of the highest and lowest levels so as to bring the country down from within and create a new world order, one world government where our constitution is entirely suspended and we are brought into a tyrannical deep state uh, oligarchy of sorts. That's not the first time and, you've said those words, it sounds like. No, no, I said it a lot. Um, but the thing is, is that, and this is a part of the shamanic tradition, in particular the Hioka shaman, is to dress in elaborate fashion, not just to chase off evil spirits, not just to uh, chase off uh, bad vibes and, and uh, bad negative timelines, but, but also to shock the cognitive system of the tribe. The Hioka will say hello when somebody says goodbye. They'll say goodbye when somebody says hello. They'll walk backwards through the camp of the tribe. They'll do all sorts of stuff that causes a shock to the cognitive system. And then once that shock has been made, once the cultural paradigm has been shattered, then the shaman will come in and basically give people the, the, you know, the hard news. Guess what? What you think of as reality, it's not reality. It's just what you're perceiving it. People don't see reality as it is. They see reality as they are. 
And that's kind of the message for eons that the shaman has brought to the people. There was a, a Longmire episode, I feel like, that highlighted at least a little touch of that, something like the reverse warrior or the backwards warrior. Is that the concept we're talking about? Yes. Is it is that the words? Am I using the right words? I'm trying to remember it. Yeah, my... yeah. It's, you know, there's all sorts of different words for it. But yeah, the Hioka is like that, that backward warrior, the reverse warrior. Um, so, I mean... I saw a great meme that showed a picture of Leonidas, you know, screaming. And then next to it was a picture of Buddha meditating. And it said, yes, you can be both. And uh, I do believe that, that you have to have a warrior spirit, especially in this time. But that doesn't mean that your spirit has to be one of violence or anger. What it means is, is that the, the need to do something, this, this deep, profound sense that we got to do something that can be channeled properly and strategically to affect positive change through peaceful means. It's supposed to motivate us to make essential changes in our lives personally, because as within, so without. So when you make a change within, it is reflected everywhere around you because then you embody that change. That's why Gandhi said, you know, you have to be the change you want to see in the world. Is there a place for violence in your tradition? Well, in like the shamanic tradition? Uh, and in your personal interpretation of it, is there a place for, for violent action or violence against others? Well, I'll say this much, you know. And I'm not trying to bait you into something. Let, let me, let me uh, caveat that lest there be any uh, concern because everyone knows what my background is. I fully believe that there are times when violence is necessary. And it has been necessary, either on behalf of the state or defending your own family. I am 100% committed to violently defending my family should someone present an opportunity for violence against me. So I will go on record and say that as, as a way of saying, I'm interested in what your take is on that, but I'm not trying to lead you into something specifically. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Lord knows the government's just waiting for me to step yeah, in. Yeah, and, the and they monitor my podcast for what it's worth. The FBI security division oh, yeah. loves watching. So, you know. Oh, dude, they monitor my they monitor my Twitter too. So, you know, God love them. Peace. Love you guys. Thank you for your service. Um, <laughs> I, I will say this, any foreign adversary that this, I, I feel a great swell of pity that for any foreign adversary, for any person that comes to my home or comes to my country looking for trouble. It makes sense. I mean, that was the, uh, that was the arguments that the, uh, the Japanese emperor made, right? That uh, invasion of the American homeland would be a rifleman behind every blade of grass. You live in Arizona. Yeah, big mistake. <laughs> Arizona is a gun I think, place. I think uh, the United States of America, I saw something said the uh, United States of America owns 46% of the world's 1 billion guns. And it's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if there's only a billion guns, then we do. Uh, it, is, it is pretty wild. Uh, so I always ask people, it's like, well, I own the first million. Who owns the rest of these things, right? Um you you showed up in describe the outfit that you had because I know that there was a uh, there was a headgear there's obviously face paint there was uh, some kind of a, a, a was there a body wrap of some kind I'm I'm trying to get no. to the point of what, Those what was are involved? tattoos man okay so you've got tattoos Those are that's, tattoos all right, that's in my head in my, in my head it was it was uh, animal skins um, hand anything in your hand staff flag something I, like I had a staff and a flag. Um, I the the coyote tails and the coyote skin that's what are I'm thinking about yes. I'm kind of yeah, jealous of yeah, that, by that, the way. It looks really good. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Uh, I uh, th Then the Diné, or Navajo 
tradition, the Navajo call themselves Diné. Mm -hmm. In the Diné tradition, the coyote is like the trickster or like the liar, the schemer. And so I'm wearing, I, I have the trickster by the tails. I'm wearing the trickster skin because if the trickster messes with the buffalo, he gets the horns. You know what I mean? Um, the face paint, obviously the American flag. Um, the tattoos, I have over 100 hours worth of tattoos because tattoos in the shamanic tradition are used, uh, the pain and the ordeal is used to push the mind out of the body. And all of my tattoos have symbolism. They are, it's kind of like in the military, how military members wear ribbons on their chest. Well, in shamanic traditions, uh, you have tattoos on your body that signify accomplishments that have been made, ordeals overcome, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So all my tattoos are earned. All of my tattoos are uh, symbolic of something in one way or another. So the whole thing is a, a religious statement. And the way that I was dressed on January 6th and many of the other uh, demonstrations that I've gone to and many of the other things that I've done have been, um, they, they have been a part of that shamanic tradition. They have deep rooted meaning. They have a profound, uh, history behind them. And so it's like, it's akin to wearing priestly robes. Mm -hmm. Here's the question I have about that day, the, the day of January 6th, you're physically there. You were treated in a certain way. Um, you, did you, I can't remember, did you plead guilty? Was that the, or was it a conviction? I, I feel like you pled guilty. Is that right? No, I, I, I pled out. Okay. So, uh, and, and that's what 98% of people do in the federal system. Anybody who doesn't know how the federal system is designed, that is how it is designed. Uh, at this point, this is the nature of it. Overwhelming charges and people plead out, uh, to get the most favorable situation. You're going up against a very big animal when that happens. Uh, as that happened, you were immediately branded in this, like I say, sort of mimic way, this cartoonish way by the media as the QAnon shaman, which has a real catchy ring to it. Uh, and it sounds like it comes from the sign that you were carrying that Q sent you. Is that your interpretation of that? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, uh, the term QAnon shaman or Q shaman came from Alex Jones. It's like the only time that Alex Jones ever said anything in the media ran with it. Um, <laughs> he called me Q shaman. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think it was on January 8th when I did an interview with him. And then the media started calling me the QAnon shaman. And then they started having the audacity to say that that's what I called myself. I mean, just goes to show you can't believe anything that they say. Um, so yeah, that's where that came from. Um, QAnon is a fiction. It's something made up by the media. It's not, there's Q and then there's the anons that follow Q. There is no Q anon. And what the media does, what the Mockingbird media is classic for is creating a misinformation narrative that they control. And with the Q anon label, what they decided to do was to run a bunch of hit pieces on Q anon and then push it in the media. And then if and when anybody got curious about QAnon, they would go and they'd find, oh, there's this and there's this and there's this. And it's all stuff that the media has said. But if the media, think about it like this. If the media were to just say, who is Q? What is Q? Who is Q? Q, Q, Q. Then people would look up Q. Then they'd look up the Q drops. And then the media would really be screwed. So um, they created a fiction, QAnon. 
And then below that label, they placed labels like white supremacy, violence, terrorism, hatred, you know, radicalism, all this other stuff, conspiracy theory. And so then by labeling me the QAnon shaman, they essentially tagged all of those things onto me. Now, uh, just to let you know how this has affected me. I was doing my best when I got out. Uh, I had a website. Uh, I still have a website, but on that website was merchandise that people could purchase. Mm-hmm. Well, because you know, cool. Why not? You know, it's it's. I, I've been told by many that I become a symbol for freedom, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. And so, uh, the Printful. I went to Printful, the drop shipping company for uh, this merchandise. And it didn't take but a month or two before they refused to put my face on any merchandise because they said it was associated with QAnon and that QAnon was associated with white supremacy, with violence, and with hatred. And so now I am not able to sell my merch on Printful. I need to find another drop shipping company to, to do my merch. Yeah, maybe Bigly would be a good uh, option. They seem B-I-G-L-Y. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> yeah, check them, uh, check them out. They've, they've uh, approached us as well and been uh, at least favorable to the idea. We're doing something a little bit different, but uh, it's an option uh, and interesting. And they have some big facilities. Matt Couch, I can get you connected later. So, cool. Um, I'm really curious about your interaction with our justice system. Had you interacted with either the federal or the local justice system before uh, the January 6th events? No, thank God. So I've no- always been a law-abiding citizen. I've always tried to do my best to to help, not hurt. And that's what I was trying to do on January 6th was help, not hurt. That's why the cops were escorting me around the building, because I offered to help them. But Lord knows that can't be a part of the media or the government's narrative, because then that would just show the flaws in their house of cards. Can you talk about what that, uh, I don't know if you're restricted from any of this, but can you talk about the conversation that was happening between you and those those cops that were walking around in the building? We've seen the footage, I think. Right. What was going on without with the actual soundtrack? Well, what happened was that I went into the Senate in the upper terrace of the chamber to sing my shamanic song. And when I saw that there were people down in the Senate chamber itself, shortly thereafter, that's when I went up to the cops. I was like, hey, there's people in the Senate. There's people in the Senate chamber. If you want... I can go down there like with you and like make sure that there's no violence or, you know, theft or vandalism or anything. And if you want, I can even help you clear the chamber, you know, and they're like, yeah, grab your take your bullhorn. Let's go down there. And then so that's why we were walking from one building to another to I mean, one uh, door to another within the building and those doors were locked. And then, you know, we found the one that was open. Did they introduce themselves? What was that re- interaction like uh, as far as a human interaction? It was very human. No, they didn't per se introduce themselves. It's not like they shook their hand. Nice to meet you. You know, nothing like that. It was just like, cause dude, it was, it was chaos on that day. There was, there was so much going on and yeah, it, I'll say this. There was a, there was infinitely more violence on the outside than there was on the inside. And this is where we get into this mockingbird media narrative that is dev- designed to divide the country. You see, mm-hmm. because the CNN, MSNBC types are saying it was a violent and deadly insurrection. And then they only show images of what was going on outside. And then the Fox News, Newsmax types say, oh, it was a mostly peaceful protest. And then they show all the stuff that was going on inside. They show what, you know, the cops, you know, escorting me around the building. 
when the truth is it's a gray issue. Yeah, there was violence on that day. Yeah, there was vandalism. Yeah, people people assaulted police officers. That was all mostly happening on the outside. And as terrible as it is, the four people that died on that day, guess what? They were protesters, not police officers. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe that anybody that does, that vandalizes property or anybody that uh, harms a police officer, they should be prosecuted. But trespassing charges, I mean, taking FBI agents off of terrorism cases, off of um, cartel cases, off of murder cases, off child rape cases, and then placing them on misdemeanor cases for January 6th, you got to be kidding me. If that isn't evidence of government interference or, or government uh, politicalization, politicization, I, I mean, I don't know what is. That's, that's the Justice Department's politicization, pure and simple. Yeah, we agree on that pretty easily. Um, it's it's a pretty strange moment. I don't know if you've heard me ever say this, but uh, when I was at Quantico, they actually taught us that misdemeanors were beneath the FBI's time. It just wasn't worth our time uh, because why would, yeah. you, why would you waste your time? Like, we don't even mess around with weak felonies. You go for the big stuff. That's what the Bureau is designed to do, one would think. Yes. Well, I mean, and, and considering the fact that, like, our government resources, our federal resources ought to be devoted to just that, protecting the homeland. And this is the thing, and this isn't really per se a popular opinion in the conservative community, uh, but there's lots of good people in the FBI, man. And I know you know that. There's sure. lots of good people. There's lots of good people in CIA. Sure. You know, what has happened is that the tops of these pyramids have been corrupted. And then from the top down, the people in the lower ranks are controlled. What gets investigated? Who's on what investigation? Who gets charged? You know, who? Uh, what country uh, is going to get uh, overthrown? You know, the CIA and their covert operations and stuff. Um, it's it's the leadership. That's why I said we're we're lost because we follow blind leaders. And while a lot of people think, oh, we need to you know, ban the FBI or we need to dismantle the FBI. We need to get rid of it. No, dude, no. What needs to happen is we need to have real and good leadership in the FBI that is going to protect the homeland, <laughs> you know, not go after citizens within it. <laughs> At what point does an agency that has betrayed the fundamental purpose of it, which is, like you said, defend the homeland, go after the, uh, the the serious threats. At what point does that agency lose its legitimacy and have to be disbanded then? Well, the way I look at it is it's like a tool, whether it be a power tool or a firearm. In the case of law enforcement, it's probably best to use the metaphor of a firearm that it's not a matter of the firearm itself. It's a matter of who's wielding it. You know, a firearm can be used to protect freedoms and liberties and protect citizens. It can also be used to take freedoms and liberties and hold citizens or hold people hostage. It's all a matter of who has the firearm. What is their intention? Now, you know, COINTELPRO, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, this kind of is indicative of the idea that the FBI has not been the greatest force in American history for a while. 
I mean, I don't know how you feel about the notion of the FBI having Martin Luther King Jr. killed, but I wouldn't be surprised at all. Well, they certainly encouraged the his case. suicide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many and how many other suicides have happened that the FBI hasn't investigated because they have certain political implications and they get people out of the way of the deep state? I mean, look at what happened to Gary Webb, for God's sake. Uh, so... In my opinion, it's not the agency itself. It's the people in it. And there's good people in a very bad system. And restructuring, absolutely. Absolutely. But entire defunding and dismantling, is that really necessary? I don't think so. I mean, I just, to me, I just think to myself, like, imagine if somebody like yourself was at a really high level within the FBI. Then you could do a lot of good. Mm -hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? So well, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Let's not, because of people like Comey and Ray, let's not, you know, be like, oh, the whole thing is screwed. Well, no, then, then we're, we're, we're losing sight of the real problem. And, and the only way that you can solve the problem is if you understand what the problem is. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it fully. So we have to be able to explain simply what the problem is. And what the problem is, is that the tippy tops of these pyramids, these bureaucratic agencies are all corrupted. They all have an Anthony Fauci. They all have a Christopher Ray. They all have a corrupt individual at the tippy top. Sorry, Ray. That's what I think. Um, and it is these individuals that have to lose their jobs. And in the case of Anthony Fauci, certainly spend a little bit of time in prison. Cause if it's one thing that I learned about prison, it's that some of these, uh, bureaucrats in DC and some of these corrupt politicians could certainly use a dose of it. <laughs> I'm going to claw at this, uh, this answer that you just gave a little bit. So, um, the agents that came and arrested you, what was your experience going in, um, being taken into custody, being transported, all the, can you kind of give me a, a rundown of what it felt like? First of all, tell people the specifics and then your impression of the people that were handling you. Well, nobody came to arrest me. When I found out the FBI was looking for me, I called them. Mm -hmm. When they wanted information, I called them. I was like, hey, I heard you guys were looking for information on me. Might as well get it from, straight from the horse's mouth, you know? And you went to either a field and, office or a resident agency? And yeah, yeah, in. and then... what? Yeah, and then on the 9th of January, we had scheduled a meeting where I went into the FBI field office. They told me they weren't going to arrest me, and I told them I would show up even if they told me that they were going to, but it was just misdemeanor charges at the time. And so they're like, no, it's just you know, it's just misdemeanors. We just want to talk to you. And I thought, like what you were saying, FBI doesn't waste their time with misdemeanors. Like, you know, they're probably, you know, if he says he's not going to arrest me, it's just misdemeanors, I'll probably be all right. And I told the guy at the time, I said, look, are you going to arrest me? Just tell me. If you're going to arrest me, just tell me. I'm still going to show up. I just want to know so I can say goodbye to my dog and my mom. You know what I mean? Like, so he's like, no, I see no reason to arrest you. We just want to talk to you. And then so I show up. They, you know, have me empty my pockets. They pat me down. They wand me down. And then I go into the interrogation room. And the first thing they do is read me my Miranda rights. <laughs> I was like, you, you SOBs. You said you weren't going to arrest me. Mm -hmm. And you were showing good faith saying you'd show up anyway. Yeah. 
Because that's that's what real men do. I agree with you, but here's my problem. You just said that it's the people that are at the top that are the problem. Did anybody at the top of the FBI lie to you and read you your rights the second you showed up? They are, no, but this is what I'm saying about how the people that are in the lower levels are doing the bidding of the people up top because they don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to lose their pension. You think that's a They're good just excuse? Following, so, this, so, no, so this comes back to what we were saying before about the military. They're just following orders. This is called the uh, superior orders defense that goes back to the Nuremberg trials. You're probably Nuremberg, familiar with those. Yeah. Did that work out well for the 10 Nazis that ended up hanging? Dude, no, of course not. But the thing is, the thing is, if you really look into what happened, most Nuremberg people did, most was people a did show get trial. Off, of course. Yep. Yeah, Nuremberg was a show trial. That we brought over the worst of the worst in Operation Paperclip. We brought over the worst of the worst and wiped their war crimes clean. We gave them new identities and then put them at some of the highest levels of power in the bureaucracy. <laughs> Give me a break, you know, and then we wonder why our nation is so screwed up after World War II. It's just it's flabbergasting to me. And this is why it's so important that we know our history. This is this is one of the things I cover in my book, because it's like if we don't know our our history and we're not just talking decades ago. We're talking centuries, millennia ago. And yes, things like abortion and the killing of babies out of the womb. Guess what? That goes back millennia mm -hmm. to sacrificing children to Baal and to Moloch, to demonic entities being worshipped by really, really dumb people, if you ask me. But if we don't understand our past, if we don't understand our history, then we can't understand our present. And we certainly can't understand our future. Yeah. Well, my, my concern is, is by giving somebody a pass, I guess the question is this. Do you think that there was a specific order that was given to somebody and that it was acceptable to follow it, that when you bring in, when you bring in Jacob, you're going to tell him that you're not going to arrest him. But then when he gets here, you're going to arrest him. Do you think that was a decision made at the case agent level or you think it was above them? Oh, probably a little bit of both. The guy that I talked to, the the special agent that I talked to, was a Marine, you know, and uh, he'd been working at the FBI after his uh, career in the military, and so, uh, you know, I think what happened with me went all the way to the top. That's what I think, because yet, they're like, and, and yet someone felt okay lying guy. to you. And that's my well, concern. Yeah, that's so, what they do, man. <laughs> well, it's not what <laughs> they mean, all they do. Think... And, and here's why. And I'll tell you this from a personal experience. And this is why I have such a problem with the idea that it's just the people at the top. Because the people at the bottom are the ones that followed the orders. They're the ones that kicked down the door at Miralago. They're the ones that arrested Mark Haup, who was a pro-life activist. They're the guys who lied to you when it wasn't necessary. I would talk to you for 10 minutes. We've already spoken for about an hour here. I'm sure they spoke to you for a while on the phone and you had some interactions. And I've t spoken to guys like you. And when someone tells me I'm willing to turn myself in, I take them at their word. I tell them they're going to be arrested. I tell them what to expect. And you get your house in order. And sometimes they run. And we find them later. And I've done that. I've actually had a guy that ran away from me. He disappeared for four days. He called me. I said, are you going to uh, give yourself up? He said, no. I hung up on the phone. Like, like, a, like a high school girlfriend. And then he called me again. And he said, hey, what's going on? I said, are you going to turn yourself in? He goes, no. I hung up on him. And he called me every day for about four days. And on the Wednesday morning, he calls me up and says, uh, I'm ready to turn myself in. I'm not trying to run. I said, great. Where do you want to meet up? I said, what's going to happen next is I'm going to drive up. You're going to recognize me. I have a beard and a cowboy hat on. Uh, my partner's going to be with me. The two of us are going to walk up. As long as you keep your hands where we can see them, everyone's going to be cool. 
We'll put cuffs on you. Um, and then we'll, we'll transport you to be processed. So you know what's coming. There's no fear. I've, I've removed that. I've told you what is happening next. And he said, I agree. And we had a very peaceful interaction. This was a guy who was wanted for a violent felony because that's totally doable. He had beaten up old women. He was uh, expected to possess a gun. Uh, this was a guy who was on an Indian reservation who had gotten himself into some serious trouble. This was the interaction we had because I was honest with him. And I had that authority as an agent. I promise you, the agents who talked to you had the authority to tell, you know, they made a decision to lie to you. And knowing that, and I, and I assure you, they had the decision. They didn't have to, to lie to you, but they chose to. Does that change your feeling about the way people are working all the way down the ranks? And you can internalize yes this for a no. minute. I don't, I don't, I don't need a, spl yes, a spot. Yes in. and no. Okay. I just look, I worked with cops when I was working with kids in group homes. Um, you know, I worked with people that were in CPS or DCS and I know that CPS and DCS is corrupt as hell. Mm -hmm. But I also know that there are good people in CPS and DCS that are working to help save children from abusive parents. But I also know that there are people in CPS and DCS that are literally working to take children away from parents so they can place them in child trafficking networks. Does that mean, so are you familiar with the term, uh, with the, uh, the Stanford prison experiment? Of course. Okay, and uh, the work of his name is Philip Zagami, or no, Philip uh, Zimbardo, that's what it is, Philip Zimbardo. He's the guy that did the Stanford prison experiment. Mm -hmm. And um, you can break, break it down he, for people that don't know. Not everybody has the same psychological uh, background of some of the famous experiments out there. Okay. Well, I mean, the reason I bring him up is because he did a lecture called The Lucifer Effect and the Psychology of Evil. And he was in particular talking about what happened in um, uh, that prison in Iraq for uh, detainees. Uh, what is it called? It's the um, Abu Ghraib situation. Yeah, the Abu Ghraib situation. And what he came to find was that basically the situation happened the way that it did because he, there was a guy that was a military veteran that, I mean, a military member that was in for like 12 years, impeccable record. That's why he was placed in charge of the night shift at the, at the prison. And this guy basically was one of the ones that was facilitating the abuse of the prisoners mm -hmm. and day in day out 12 hour shifts i mean he was living in the same prison he was sleeping in the same in, in a similar bed just in a different wing of the prison uh he was getting bored other people were getting bored they'd been you know dealing with these people that had killed their own uh killed their killed uh friends and service members of these you know, military members. And eventually it got to a point to where they were bored and they're like, you know what, let's, let's mess with these guys a little bit. And then it started out with something really simple. And then, you know, you know, here pose like this, you know, Oh, here you're, we're going to make you wear a funny hat or something, you know? And then they started taking pictures. And then as time went on, it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And what Philip Zimbardo was saying was that evil has to do with a couple of things. First, dehumanization mm -hmm. second is a environment in which dehumanization can occur and third is a certain level of anonymity so a person can dehumanize another person they have an environment where that dehumanization can occur and lastly they uh believe that 
what it is that they're doing is not ever going to come to light. Okay. So if we look at modern corruption in America, that's exactly what we're dealing with. Well, do me a favor dealing and with point, point that lens at the, at the FBI agents that dealt with you. Have their names been made very public? Have they had to stand and, and say that they did the right thing? No, I'm a really forgiving person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, my belief is, is that karma's a bitch. Forgive the language. <laughs> sure. And um, I, I, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I don't seek vengeance. And uh, anybody that seeks to undermine God's plan or undermine God's children does not fare very well. God bless these people for they know not what they do. If Christ can forgive the people nailing him to the cross, then I can forgive these people. I can forgive my captors. I can forgive the FBI for lying to me. God will deal with them more harshly than I ever could. That's for sure. Um, And so I would call them to repentance. I would call them to have the courage to do what it is that you have done. Be a whistleblower. Grow a pair of balls. You know what I mean? Stand up. You, you say you're here as an American citizen. You fought for our country in the, in the military, and yet you're going to go and sell us out because you're working for the feds? Come on now. You know what I mean? No, 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 no. That's where you can do the most good is if you see some stuff going on that's nefarious in the government, then you should have the courage to stand up. But, and this is a good example like with what happened to you and what happened to Agent Friend, is that they make examples out of whistleblowers. Real whistleblowers, they make examples out of you. And then all of these other people that are looking on the side and they want to do something, they're looking and they're like, let's see what's going to happen. They do that to you guys so that those people inside the agency will be like, well, I want my pension. I want to be able to, to have uh, dinner on the plate for my family. So I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to get these next five years in and then I'm going to retire. You know, and, and that right there to me, it's cowardice because it's like, look, dude, are you thinking about how it is that this is going to affect seven generations from now? How will your apathy, how will your cowardice affect seven generations from now? Imagine if the evil that you're seeing in this agency is existing now and has existed for decades, how much worse it's going to be seven generations away. If, and now imagine the difference that you can make now. It's like the whole thing in Back to the Future where like they go back, they change one little thing, and then it changes the whole timeline in the future, right? Well, guess what? This right now is the past for future timelines. Mm-hmm. So if you do something now, you can change everything for the future. And yeah, you may have to go through some shit. Oh, sorry for the language. Yeah, you may have to go through some stuff, but... You will be better for it, and so will the world be. So find your balls, make sure they're still there, and do something about it. I feel like you just made my argument for getting rid of the agency. They, they claim that their job is fidelity, bravery, and integrity. That's what the FBI motto is. Fidelity, meaning that they have rigid obedience to the Constitution. Bravery, meaning doing the right thing even when it's difficult, courage. And integrity, doing the right thing when no one's looking. And I think you just made the argument that that's not happening. I know that it's not happening too. But would, it, it's hard for me to justify an agency surviving when they are made up of people that self-proclaim uh, a set of virtues that they don't possess as an agency, not as human beings, but as an agency. It doesn't, 
It doesn't. It's not pervasive. And you experienced okay. it. Okay. Well, and uh, let me think, ask things you. Things that this. you want. What? What? Then would be the solution to create another agency. Well, I think less government's that, better if you're asking me. But. Well, I agree. <laughs> uh, no, I agree. No, I agree entirely. But the thing is, and this is part of why I have the view that I do. Okay. The Russians and the Chinese, for example, they are going to create all sorts of, of infiltrators. They're going to create all sorts of agitators. They're going to create, in some cases, yes, even like sleeper cells and terrorists and stuff like that to infiltrate our country. Okay. Now, should we leave it to state officials to protect the homeland? No, it is the federal government's job to protect the homeland, protect the borders, which they're not freaking doing, obviously. But so you just answered that at, question for us, didn't? Well, but but at, but, but if at they're not going to point, but at what point are we going to leave ourselves vulnerable on a national level because of the corruption that has existed in these agencies for decades? The only reason why it's existed and gone on for decades is because people are ignorant about it, because people have no, not done anything about it. So my thinking is, is that once the consciousness shifts, once the minds of the people change, then we will end up seeing a change in these agencies. Then we might actually see these agencies as a reflection of the consciousness of the people. Um, these, this idea of sleeper cells, this idea of assassins or like um, infiltrators and spies and stuff like that, there has to be a certain federal apparatus, in my opinion, to deal with those things. And it has to be really freaking strong, not necessarily big, but potent. So it's almost like, you know, silent but deadly farts. They're the worst of all. But the really, really loud ones are like, oh, my gosh, you know, that, that there's it was funny, but there's nothing really there. You know, so my thinking is, is that, you know, maybe the FBI has to be like a silent but deadly fart. You know, you don't even know it's there until, oh, my God, what the hell? You know what I mean? As opposed to being this massive bah, that everybody in the room hears. And that's kind of what they've become, except they've also become like almost like a, a really loud and extremely stinky fart. You know what I mean? I do. Um, I'm going to throw this as the simplest question to answer that. And, and I don't want an answer right now. Just something to chew on. I know you have a platform of people that are going to listen to what you have to say. So I'd, I'd be interested in you in the future reflecting on this. The FBI costs about $11 billion a year. The question is, are the American people getting $11 billion worth out of the FBI as it currently stands? That's the only yay or nay for me. Does it need to exist? No, <laughs> I can answer that right now. No. <laughs> so those are the things that you want. I, I think the, the more complicated we make the the uh, the discussion, the more difficult we get into the weeds of it. The The FBI actually functionally shut down during the original COVID lockdowns in um, 2020. It stopped having people come into work. They started teleworking in a way they never had. People just didn't show up in the national security space. The things you're actually telling me you're worried about, they didn't show up. And you didn't notice, I don't think, that anything happened. There was no significant attack on the homeland. No one else noticed either, by the way. It's not just you. It's everybody. Uh, the counterintelligence right. well, work and the know. counterterrorism work functionally shut down in most of the field offices in a big, big way. So well, and, and that's we did have we that experiment. This idea of, that's where we get into this idea of um, if the Constitution is suspended in the case of national emergencies, then they will create national emergencies to suspend the Constitution. Correct. That's all correct. Yeah, it is. And they will. Uh, it turns out a taste of power whether it be at the top or driven by the bottom is sort of irrelevant if it's driven at all. Uh, it's, it's a dangerous sort of power to have. Um, I wanted to give a couple uh, an opportunity for some of the questions that may have come out of the chat. Ryan, I'm just going to have you pop on here and let me know if we had any questions in the chat. That I just, be. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I just sent you one over. That was the best one that I've seen come through. So if you want to go with that one, yeah, let's um, do that. I'll, I'll try to grab a couple more. Okay, so uh, uh, Jacob, here's what we have. So the other day on a Twitter space with uh, TK Johnson and Jacob, uh, Tarek said basically that the officers were set up and shouldn't be responsible for actions on that day because everything falls back on Yogananda Pittman. I think we've all, uh, some people have heard this. He said, uh, the question says, I personally think that everybody should be held accountable for their actions. Personal responsibility. Uh, do you feel like... The use of force that Michael Byrd used on Ashley Babbitt and uh, Lila Morris used on Rosanna Boylan, Roseanne Boylan, sorry, was objectively reasonable. Your opinion on this? No, not objectively, uh, objectively reasonable. Um, Rod, it's okay. Your sorry, critter is now agitated. Yeah. The sun has come yeah, up he, and he, is, he saw it's game on. He saw B. Um, anyway, uh, no, I don't think it was right at all. Um, but I will say that I think that that was what people like Yogananda Pittman and yeah, Nancy Pelosi and yeah, Mark Milley and yeah, Christopher Ray and yeah, the head of the CIA. I think that's what they wanted. I think that they wanted all of that because then they could use it as an excuse to get rid of Trump demonize trump and his supporters now that's just my opinion um i believe in the idea of taking full responsibility i took full responsibility for my actions if the government said oh well you know you uh obstructed an official proceeding this is a felony it's like all right well you know i don't necessarily think that it was that extreme but you know if and this is what i said to the judge on the day of my sentencing if I didn't want a flag thrown on the field, then I should not have behaved in a way that got a flag thrown on the field. And so I take responsibility and I did my time and I got out. It's really a shame that people like Ashley Babbitt and uh, Rosanna, is it Rosanna? Rosanna? Roseanne Boylan, yep. Roseanne Boylan, that these people were killed. It's, it was totally unnecessary. Um, I also think that part of the reason why they disciplined uh, uh, Officer Johnson so much was because he screwed up their little scheme. He screwed up their plan. He, they wanted the senators in the chamber, just yeah. like they wanted the House representatives in the chamber. Hmm. And that would give them a reason to use deadly force. That would give them a reason to say they were trying to, to harm the congressman or something. So I think he screwed up their little plan. And that's why they went after him. It, they should have evacuated the the congressman the moment that people breached the barriers. And the fact that Yogananda Pittman was sitting her rear end in a chair, watching it all go down, sipping coffee and eating popcorn and not doing a dang thing about it is, to me, indicative of nefarious agendas. Fair enough. I got one other question for you. We're going to do this as the last question. We're going to wrap this sucker up here. It says, uh, how do you feel about the media and the Democrats trying to paint you as the tip of the spear for a false, violent insurrection? And do you plan to sue the shit out of them? <laughs> uh, this person says they're sorry that you had to spend time in prison for what was a walking tour of the Capitol. All right. So uh, how do you feel about being smeared that way or, or being pointed as the tip of the spear for this insurrection? Air quotes. Well, they they used my image to create a shock and awe campaign that would divide the country. They used my image uh, to create a straw man. And that straw man, they labeled all sorts of things that they could then easily defeat. Um, I am not a victim, I am a victor. 
I don't allow anybody to victimize me, you know? Um, and the thing is, is that you, you have to care about what people think of you in order to, uh, you have to value people's opinion in order to care what people are saying. And I don't value the media's opinion whatsoever. So they, they're welcome to say whatever they like. They're mockingbirds. They're all full of excrement as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so am I going to sue the shit out of them? I asked my lawyer about that because I considered it heavily. Litigation is a bitch. Litigation sucks. I don't like the courtroom. I don't like the legal system. And it would cost me money. Um, I'm not so money hungry as to come after the media to get money out of them. Um, what I think is the ultimate victory is they gave me a bigger microphone than I ever had. And now I can come out and dispel their BS narrative and call them mockingbird media and, and, you know, show that, no, I'm not this crazy violent insurrectionist, like they said, and dispel all their BS that, that, that is a reward. That right there is worth more than anything money can buy. Because now I have a chance to take all this negativity, this spell of black magic and illusions that was projected on me and just shoot it right back at him. It's a counter spell. Oh, yeah. Okay, here you go. Well, how about this? You know, how about we just take a little finger of truth and poke at that house of cards of lies, you know, and watch it all tumble down. <laughs> you know? Yeah, fair enough. Well, uh, if nothing else, I think you may have inspired a hashtag in our, our user chat, the hashtag find your balls for the FBI agents out there in the world. So if you want to see that trend, I'm sure you have a you have a platform and as do I. So I'm happy to, to retweet that there. Uh, your your handles on Twitter are American Shaman, correct? Or America? No, no, no. no. America. America. America Shaman. America Shaman. No N. Um, we'll put that in the show notes, and I do appreciate you getting up early. It looks like you've got that uh, that beautiful Arizona sunrise getting right into your eyes right now, so probably time to start the day, and I do appreciate you waking up early enough to, to share it. Yes, sir. One other thing. Mm -hmm. My website. Please. ForbiddenTruthAcademy.com. That's ForbiddenTruthAcademy.com. ForbiddenTruthAcademy.com. We have free courses that you can take. We also have Forbidden Truth Podcast and a link there if you want to watch the, uh, the podcast. We have, in total, probably like like 18 hours or so worth of free content there. We also have uh, in the menu portion of the webpage, you can go down and see all of my big interviews that I've done. We got hours and hours worth of content there. Um, and uh, I would just say that, you know, the issue that we're in right now is a crisis of consciousness. And once that crisis of consciousness is solved, once our uh, spiritual perspective has been realigned, then all of the problems that are a symptom of those uh, spiritual distortions will correct themselves. And that was kind of the point of ForbiddenTruthAcademy.com, was to create a platform where all of these issues could end up being ironed out and made clear. That's also the reason I wrote my book, One Mind at a Time, A Deep State of Illusion on Amazon. You can find it on Amazon, One Mind at a Time, A Deep State of Illusion by Jacob Angeli. Um, all of these things are designed to create clarity. They say that the path to hell is paved with good intentions, but it is not paved with clarity. So that's why I'm trying to uh, paint a path that's clear and, and create some clarity in the world because that's what we need to you know, change our consciousness. 
I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you joining me this morning. I will share those links in the show description. So folks, you'll find those in there. I'll update it as we uh, as we push this thing out into the replay. Uh, Jacob, thanks for joining me this morning. Folks, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas, in Texas, America at 930 every morning during the weekday. So we do appreciate you joining us there. We want to say thanks to all of you. And we want to say thanks for the five-star reviews we have been getting. This one is from That Kentucky Girl saying, A true countryman. Love Kyle. First watched him on Bongino and have followed him ever since. He's knowledgeable and courageous. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you, Kentucky Country Girl. We do really appreciate you joining us here. We want to say thanks to Ryan Matta for his production. You can follow him at Ryan Matta Media on Twitter or at Ryan Matta on True Social. And uh, thanks to our guests, Jacob Chansley. You can find him on Twitter at America, not American, but America Shaman. Folks, don't forget to like this video if you're watching us on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. We do stream it live in the mornings and you can join us there in the live chat. Thanks to all the live chatters. We will see you again tomorrow for Friendly Friday. You guys have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, True Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.